Amen. Thank you, Brian. Wow. You know, we're at a very special time of the year. Last week, we had our head of the year conference, which is the beginning of a new Hebrew year. And that was also a holiday in, in the biblical calendar called Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year. But it was also a holiday in the Hebrew calendar called the Feast of Trumpets. And that really launched us into the most significant time of the year. And this is a time when God wants to do something incredibly special in your life to bring you to a new place of experiencing his power and his presence in your life. And so what we're going to do today is to try to give you a roadmap of where God wants to take you in the next couple weeks. And if you plug into what God is doing, I think you'll experience incredible blessing in your life. So our message this morning is God's countdown to revival, celebrating the fall feasts. Now, biblically, we've entered one of the most important seasons of the year. And that is what is called the fall feasts. It's a season the Jews call the high holy days. And this season begins with the Feast of Trumpets, which we celebrated last weekend, but climaxes with the Feast of Tabernacles. But these days are not just important for Jews, these days are important to God. You know, like most Christians today, I grew up not knowing much about the biblical feasts. But then in 1997, Chuck Pierce gave me a word. He said, this year, we need to celebrate three biblical feasts. Well, I'll tell you, I wasn't even sure what they were. You know, from my studies in seminary, I knew the Bible devoted a lot of space to some feasts, but I'd never taken the time to study them. And so for the first time in my life, I began to seriously study the feasts. I was amazed. I found out God had given us a detailed yearly calendar. I found out feasts were not just for Jews. Zechariah promises blessings for Gentiles who will observe God's feasts. I found that Jesus and the apostles observed the feasts. I found out key New Testament events occurred in the context of the feast. I mean, Jesus was crucified at the feast of Passover. He was raised from the dead on the feast of firstfruits. The Holy Spirit fell on the feast of Pentecost. And as I went through the New Testament, what I discovered was God was keeping the feasts. Now, the feasts of the Lord are also sometimes called God's appointed times. That means they're not just rituals. They're not just holidays, but they are times set by God to meet with us and to accomplish some very specific things in our lives. They are literally appointments with God. God said, meet with me three times a year. So there are three major appointed times every year. Passover celebrates our redemption. God established a time every year to remind us that the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb, is what sets us free from the power of the enemy. 
Pentecost celebrates God's provision. God set a celebration every year to remind us that all of our needs, both physically and spiritually, are fully met in him. Tabernacles celebrates God's glory. God has established a time every year for us to draw near to his presence and rejoice in him. Now the restoration of these feasts is part of an incredible work of restoration that God is doing in his church today. You know, all over the world, in all kinds of churches, we are seeing Christians rediscover the joy of celebrating feasts like Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. And it's not a legalistic thing, it's a biblical thing. It's a restoration of something that was very important to Jesus, it was important to the apostles, and it was important to the early church. Now the high point of God's yearly calendar is what we call the fall feasts. And that's where we are right now. The fall feasts form a 21-day countdown designed to bring us into the presence of God at the Feast of Tabernacles. You might think of it as a roadmap to revival. You know, I studied revival for most of my life. And I found there are key steps that always lead to revival for an individual or a nation. And what I saw when I studied the feast was God incorporated those steps into the fall feast. God's plan was by celebrating the fall feasts, you get a taste of revival every year. Now, God's roadmap to revival has four steps. First step is wake up. That was the Feast of Trumpets. You, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, it awakens something in you. Second is turn back to God. Draw near, be made whole. And number three is be restored to God. Be restored to his covenant plan. And then finally, the last step is rejoice. Celebrate his blessing and his glory. Now the first step to revival was the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is New Year's Day in the biblical calendar. And God gave one commandment about the Feast of Trumpets. He said all of his people should listen and hear a blast of trumpets. We did that at our head of the year conference last weekend. See, the sound of the trumpet is a call to awaken. As a matter of fact, one of the names of this day, uh, the Jews call it the day of the awakening blast. Because, you know, sometimes we need a wake-up call. We need to be called to alertness. And a wake-up call is often the first step to revival, both for nations and for individuals. You know, back in the 90s, there was an, an incredible revival swept Argentina. Some of us were able to go down there and see what was happening there. And it was just amazing. And so Christians in America started to pray, Oh Lord, do for us here what you did in Argentina. But very few realized what it took to bring revival in Argentina. See, Argentina lost the Falkland Island War, 
It was a national humiliation. Their economy crashed. They went from a first world country to a third world country almost overnight. And in response to the fact that their nation was falling apart, Christians responded to that wake-up call and started to get serious about prayer. And revival came. But see, God does not want us to have to wait till disaster strikes. So he invented a less painful wake-up call. And God designed the sound of the trumpet to pierce our soul and call us to attention. And when the trumpets call us to attention, it's time to turn and return. And so the ten days after the Feast of Trumpets are called the Days of Awe. That's where we are right now. When God, everybody turn to your neighbor and say, oh. <laughs> See, when God gives you a wake-up call, it's time to turn from anything that would hinder you and return to God. This is a time to draw close to God and to say, Lord, show me anything that would hinder me in my walk with you. And once you've done that, you're ready for the Day of Atonement. Uh, the Day of Atonement is a day to be fully restored. It was the day when the high priest confessed the sins of the nation and then he entered the Holy of Holies to put the blood on the mercy seat. It's a day to put all of your sins under the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb, and be fully restored to God and his purposes. Now this year, the Day of Atonement begins tonight at sundown. So tonight we move into the Day of Atonement, a very, very special day. It's a day to confess your sins and make sure any hindrances to fellowship have been removed. So sometime in the next 24 hours, I would encourage you, get with God, confess any sins that he shows you, and then claim his promise of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants you to come out of the day of atonement knowing every sin is forgiven. You're cleansed of all unrighteousness. Then you can enjoy fellowship with God knowing you are forgiven. Now, if you're not sure how to do that, I want to recommend a book called Set Yourself Free. Now, it's a deliverance manual, but in chapter 2, there's an exercise called Removing the Enemy's Opportunity. And it takes you step by step through the process of dealing with sin. It shows you how to remove any hindrances in your relationship with God so you can come joyfully into his presence at the Feast of Tabernacles. And so when we've had the Feast of Trumpets, the Days of Awe, the Day of Atonement, it's time to get ready to celebrate Tabernacles. Now, what is Tabernacles all about? Why do we celebrate it? Well, when God created us, he put us in an earthly paradise. He planted a garden in Eden. And in that garden, Adam and Eve experienced full provision and perfect health. But more importantly, they experienced perfect, unbroken fellowship with God. And the garden was really the first sanctuary. It was a place where God dwelt with his people and they experienced his glory. 
And in that beautiful garden, God came and walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening, enjoying intimate, unbroken fellowship. Unfortunately, all of that was lost. When Adam and Eve sinned, they could no longer stay in the garden because the burning purity of God's presence would have consumed them like a wad of paper in a blast furnace. And so they were driven out of the garden. Their world became one of pain and sickness, lack, and ultimately death. But God had not given up on the human race. God had a plan for restoration. Now, one key to restoration was a tabernacle. Through a tabernacle, God's presence could again dwell among his people. And at the tabernacle, the effects of the curse were lifted and the blessing of God was restored. And that's why a celebration of tabernacles means it's time to rejoice. You know, God gave one key instruction for observing the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was rejoice. <laughs> okay, people, you're not rejoicing enough. This is a time to rejoice. Let me tell you, the Jews took that command very seriously. No feast was more joyful than tabernacles. I mean, let me show you how the Jews expressed their joy during this feast. In Jesus' day, the Jews celebrated tabernacles with all-night praise gatherings in the temple courtyards. And the Jewish Talmud describes these celebrations this way. It says, first, an immense candelabrum was set up in the temple courtyard. It generated such intense light that it illuminated every courtyard in the city. And then while Levites played flutes and trumpets and harps and cymbals, there were torchlight processions with men dancing ecstatically to hand-clapping, foot-stomping, praise-singing crowds. A highlight of these gatherings involved Jewish priests juggling flaming torches. One priest, Rabbi Simon ben Gamaliel, was famous for the fact that he could juggle eight flaming torches at the same time. Let me tell you, the Jews took their rejoicing seriously. Now, I don't know that flaming torches are necessary. I hope not. But God wants us to rejoice too. And during tabernacles, God wants us to experience the overwhelming joy of being in his presence. Now to more fully understand this feast and why it is such a time of rejoicing, it's helpful to understand God's tabernacles. See, there were five tabernacles in the Bible. And when we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, we're celebrating all of them. The first tabernacle was built by Moses. Israel was camped in the wilderness, living in tabernacles, temporary shelters. And God spoke to Moses and said, build a tabernacle for me also, so I can live among my people. And so they made a tabernacle for God in the middle of their camp, and God's glory appeared and dwelt among them. See, a tabernacle is a place where God's glory dwells in the midst of his people, releasing a continual flow of his blessing. Now, to host God's presence in Moses' tabernacle, strict rules had to be followed. 
The design had to follow a specific pattern set by God, and there were three courts with specific pieces of furniture in each one. And the outer court was the altar for sacrifice, the laver for cleansing. Then in the inner court, there was the menorah, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. And finally, in the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant where the glory of God came down and rested. With all of these in place, Israel could experience God's glory. But then in David's day, God revealed another way to host God's glory. David pitched a tent in Jerusalem and put the ark in it. He surrounded it with praise 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and God was literally enthroned on the praises of his people. His presence dwelt openly among his people, and the nation experienced incredible blessing. That was David's tabernacle. But then there was a third tabernacle. The third tabernacle was Jesus. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh, and it literally says, and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. So how was Jesus a tabernacle? Well, first of all, because the glory of God lived in him. When you were with Jesus, you were in the presence of God. He was God living among his people. Wherever Jesus went, the blessing of God was released. The sick were healed, demons were cast out, the hungry were fed, and the dead were raised. And so part of celebrating tabernacles is celebrating Jesus. But then there was a fourth tabernacle. The fourth tabernacle is the church. Tell your neighbor, that's you. See, the book of Acts tells us that the church is to be a restoration of David's tabernacle. Back in Amos, God promised that David's tabernacle would one day be restored. And the result would be great blessing for Gentiles who seek the Lord. And in Acts 15, when James hears the report that Gentiles are finding salvation, he remembers Amos' prophecy and he said, this is that. This is what Amos was prophesying. David's tabernacle has been restored. And so the tabernacle of David has been restored in the church. After the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came to live in the heart of every believer. And so wherever the early church met, the glory of God was there. He was in their midst. And God poured out blessing through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The book of Revelation describes a fifth tabernacle. It's an eternal tabernacle. It's a heavenly tabernacle. It calls it the tabernacle of God. Revelation 21 says, Now the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will live with them. Isaiah 45 says, Over everything, the glory will be a tabernacle. The heavenly tabernacle is filled with continual praise and worship. God is again enthroned on the praises of his people. And the result is continual blessing. A flow of blessing that will never end. It says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. 
And so the theme of the tabernacle runs through the whole Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it's an expression of God's love and his desire to fellowship with us. Exodus 25, 8 expresses God's heart for his people when he says, have them make a sanctuary, a tabernacle for me, and I will dwell among them. And so a tabernacle is any place where the glory of God dwells with his people. And the result is the blessing of God is poured out in the earth. Now what is God's glory? Glory is one of those religious words that we use and sometimes we aren't sure what it means. But God's glory is God's tangible presence. See, God is always present, but you usually can't perceive him with your five senses. You might think of God's presence like a Wi-Fi signal. It can be all around you, but your physical symptoms, senses cannot perceive it. But if you turn on your laptop, what was invisible becomes tangible. And there are words and pictures and sounds. You now experience what your senses could not perceive. See, God is always here, but we can't always perceive his presence. But there are times when he makes his presence tangible. You know, when you hear people give testimonies of encounters with God, usually what they're describing is how God suddenly became tangible. And when they give their testimonies, they'll say things like, I knew God was speaking to me. Or I sensed the presence of God in a way I had never known before. Or I didn't understand what was happening. I couldn't stop weeping. Tears were rolling down my cheeks. God was there with me. And see, in those times, everything changed. In God's presence, we find salvation and repentance and empowering. We find healing and provision and fulfillment. See, anytime you can feel his presence with you, what you're feeling is his glory. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration of God's glory. It's a time to remember past experiences of his glory. It's a time to seek his face now and rejoice in his glory as we tabernacle with him. It's a time to call out to God for a fresh outpouring of his glory in the new year. But one week a year, God asks his people to leave their normal routine behind and tabernacle with him. And he gave them an interesting way to celebrate it. He told them to make temporary shelters. In Hebrew, that means sukkah. As a reminder of how God's glory visited them in the wilderness. And God promised a special blessing for those who would celebrate this feast. He said, if you will treat this week as special, I will meet with you. So this year, Tabernacles begins this coming Friday night at sundown. And it lasts for one week. So what do we do at Tabernacles? Tabernacles is a time to remember. Remember how God came down and tabernacled with his people. It's a time to gather with family and friends to share testimonies and stories of of the times God visited with you. Tabernacles is a time to enjoy. You know, celebrating with God is supposed to be fun. 
God doesn't want your walk with him to be a dead ritual or a solemn obligation. He's a loving father who delights to see his children have fun. And so Leviticus 23 commands, rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Deuteronomy 16, be joyful at your feast for the Lord your God will bless you and your joy will be complete. Tabernacles is a time to bring an offering, an expression of thanksgiving to God. Deuteronomy 16 says, no man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. And see, when you give as an overflow of thanksgiving, it fills your heart with joy. So tabernacles is a time to have a taste of revival every year. It's a good week to plan some special things. Plan some extended times to meet with God. Spend relaxed times in his word. Get together with family and friends. Share testimonies of God's goodness. Eat your favorite foods and thank God for his blessings. And then especially if you have children, although you can do it even if you don't have children, build a tabernacle. Build a sukkah. A temporary shelter. You know, Nehemiah 8 says this, Go into the hills and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees to make sukkahs. And it says, So the people built sukkahs on their roofs and in their courtyards, and their joy was very great. See, to the Jews, tabernacles is a joyful family celebration. They built a sukkah. Some lived in it for the week. Others just gathered there with friends. Some eat their meals in there. But it's a way to celebrate God's blessing and God's presence. So why not build a sukkah? You can build all kinds of sukkahs. You can be creative. You could build a model sukkah. You can have a backyard sukkah. You can have an indoor sukkah. You can have a sukkah in church. You can have a sukkah on a balcony. You can have a wooden sukkah. You can have a fabric sukkah. You can have a rustic sukkah. You can have a sukkah in a tent. You can decorate your sukkah. You can light up your sukkah. You can party in your sukkah. You can picnic in your sukkah. You can even sleep in your sukkah. But when you're in your sukkah, remember, God is there to tabernacle with you. So enjoy the fun of celebration with God. Anticipate, call out to God for his glory. He wants you to experience his glory at tabernacles. He wants to meet you in your sukkah and not just as a ritual. He wants it to be a reality. And so I need to give a testimony. Because when we first found out about tabernacles, we were really excited and we, we bought, built a sukkah. And we would go out in our yard and sit in our sukkah. We'd invite friends over and we'd have communion in our sukkah. And we'd say, oh, this is so much fun. This is so great. It's just like they were did back in the wilderness. Wow, this, this is just an awesome thing to do. And I taught an Issachar course about the feasts. And I taught about the Feast of Tabernacles. And I taught about sitting in your sukkah and it's a place where God wants to meet with you. 
And that year, a friend of ours from Alaska, Eleanor Rule, came down and took the course. And right after the course was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so we invited Eleanor to come and join us one evening in our tabernacle. And it was amazing. She, we all went out to get in the tabernacle, but as she went in, it was like, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. I want to meet with you. Oh, Jesus, I'm coming into your tabernacle. And the weirdest thing happened. The presence of God came down and filled the tabernacle. I mean, we could barely stand up because the glory of God was there. And God explained to me later what had happened. He said, you were enjoying tabernacles as a ritual. It was a good ritual. It was a biblical ritual. It was a fun ritual, but it was a ritual. Eleanor came for the reality. She wanted to experience my glory. And because that's what she came for, that's what she got. So as you celebrate tabernacles, enjoy it. It's supposed to be fun, but it's also supposed to be real. God wants to meet with you this week. Now some people think the feasts are just for the Jews, but the Bible says tabernacles is also for Christians. The Bible says this is a feast for Gentiles who worship the Lord. How many of you are Gentiles that worship the Lord? Zechariah 14, the time will come when people from among the Gentiles will worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you're a Gentile that worships the God of Israel, God says this feast is also for you. But there's a second reason why tabernacles is important for Christians. To explain it, I want to answer the question, when was Jesus born? Now we know he was not born December 25th because shepherds do not keep their flocks out in the fields in late December in Israel. But some people say, well, you know, we can't really know when he was born. But maybe we can. And I can't prove it to you, but I can suggest it to you. Luke 1.5 tells us that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was a priest of the order of Aviah. We think, that's interesting. Why is he telling us that? In 1 Chronicles 24, it says, The priest of the order of Aviah took their turn serving in the temple during the 12th through the 18th day of Sivan, which is in our month of June. Now, during the day Zechariah served in the temple, an angel appeared to him and told him that when he went home from the temple, his wife would get pregnant and the baby that would be born would be John the Baptist. And I think that gives us a clue as to when Jesus was born. See, if the angel appears to him at the temple during the 12th through the 18th of Sivan, then on the 19th, he got up and went home to his wife, assuming he got busy on the angelic assignment right away. Elizabeth probably conceived about the 25th day of Sivan. And if she had a normal pregnancy of 285 days, John the Baptist would have been born on the 15th day of Nisan, which just happens to be Passover. Luke 1.36 tells us Elizabeth was six months pregnant 
When Jesus was conceived, so Elizabeth's sixth month would have been the 25th day of the month of Kislev, which just happens to be Hanukkah. So Jesus, the light of the world, was conceived at Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. Now, if Jesus was conceived the 25th of Kislev, and Mary had a normal pregnancy of 285 days, the birth of Jesus would have taken place on the 15th day of Tishri, which just happens to be the Feast of Tabernacles. So as you sing, celebrate tabernacles in your sukkah, you can sing, Happy Birthday, Jesus. You know, John, I think that's why John, the, John describes the birth of Jesus this way. In John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Now, if that's true, it sheds some light on the Christmas story. Because in Luke 2, most of our translations say, Mary brought forth her child and laid him in a manger. And so we have all the pretty pictures in the Christmas cards of Jesus laying in a feeding trough. But the Greek word for manger is phatne, and it can mean a manger. It can also mean a stall or a stable or a temporary shelter. The Hebrew equivalent for phatne is sukkah or tabernacle. Genesis 33 says Judah made sukkahs for his cattle. Now, when Mary and Joseph came into Bethlehem during the feast, there were no rooms in the inn, but there were sukkahs everywhere. And so we could translate Luke 2, 7, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a sukkah. And on that Feast of Tabernacles, the glory of God came into that sukkah as Jesus the Messiah was born. You know, in John chapter 7, when Jesus celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, he gave an incredible promise. John 7 says, on the last day of the feast, Jesus said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from his his innermost being. Now, it's helpful if we understand the context of that. See, one of the key elements in celebrating tabernacles, in addition to juggling flaming torches, was called the ceremony of outpouring. And it was really the high point of the entire cycle of appointed times. Every year at Tabernacles, the high priest performed a prophetic act. He took a golden pitcher and filled it with water from the pool of Siloam. He carried it up to the temple and he poured it out at the altar. It was an appeal to God for the latter rain in the natural realm was also an appeal to God for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual rain. Because God had promised, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. And see, that ceremony was repeated every day during the Feast of Tabernacles. And each day, the celebration was greater More people came. Everybody crowded around to hear the pouring out of the water. This great prophetic act. 
And that helps us understand John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. Because it says the last day, the great day of the feast, the priest would have brought water from Siloam. He would have carried it up to the altar. He would have lifted it up to pour it out. A hush would have fallen over the crowds because everybody wanted to hear the water being poured. And then just as the priest is about to pour the water, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. See, that's Jesus' goal. Overflowing life. That's really what Tabernacles is all about. And so this year at Tabernacles, choose to celebrate the feast. Draw close to Jesus. Receive his river of life. Celebrate his glory. And rejoice. Lord, we thank you for this special time of year. We thank you for the Feast of Tabernacles. Lord, if, this, uh, if for anyone here, anyone listening on the web, if, if you've never celebrated Tabernacles before, I release a special anointing to you to enter into the feast and experience the blessing God wants to give you through it. Lord, we thank you for it. I bless each one here now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Robert. Let's stand up before we... I'm expectant <laughs> with what we've experienced, the movement that we're in for Robert's teaching on this tabernacle season. The blessing that he gave to help us celebrate... I just want you to lift up your hands. Those of you joining on webcast, lift up your hands with us. Father, we are grateful for your times and seasons, for your calendar of blessing, that you have a roadmap for us to encounter your goodness, your presence in new ways. Lord, in this week as a people, we choose to be set into your timing, to celebrate and welcome your presence to honor your glory, and to rejoice in your goodness. If you agree, say amen. 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 We send you forth into this week. God bless you.